0: Calling this message Gospel Fragrance for reasons you will see momentarily, but let's go ahead and read our text. This is the Word of God, John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And with the house, excuse me, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Note that. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it. the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Skip down to verse 12. On the next day, the the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have come now to hear from your word, to learn of your holiness and what you demand of your people. We confess that in and of ourselves we are powerless to fulfill what you require. So we ask that your spirit would empower us, direct us, lead us, sustain us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're back in our uh, study of the Gospel of John, and we're picking right up where we left off uh, two weeks ago. Um, Jesus, if you recall, uh, he discharged his seventh and final sign of John's total of seven signs in his Gospel, and that sign was really quite impressive. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. When Lazarus was commanded by the giver and author of life to come out of the tomb, and he did just that, it caused no small stir in Israel. Multitudes of Jews turned to Jesus in faith. However, for the religious leaders, though, this was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. Jesus gives life. They seek violence. The contrast couldn't be more stark. They want Jesus dead, and we're actually told here in John 12, 9 through 11, that they were not satisfied with only Jesus' death. They wanted Lazarus dead, too. That's a problem. He's collateral damage. So the plot thickens. It continues to grow. The bloodlust grows. uh, Wicked men acting more wickedly. Sounds like Romans 1, does it not? In our passage, though, here this evening, uh, we have two unique stories. We have... Uh, in verses 1 through 8, we speaks of the incident of Mary, who washed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume and with her hair. And then we have verses 12 through 19, which is basically John's version of Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem uh, on, a, on a young donkey. Now, all four accounts of the Gospels, they describe the Palm Sunday incident. So whenever you have all four in agreement on something... Um, Not that they're in disagreement, they just emphasize different things, but especially reading John's gospel, whenever all four are doing it, you should be paying very close attention. So the two incidents, though, as I described, are related, and so that's why I chose to do them together. So let's dig in. If you look at verse one, we see that uh, the event took place in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, and this was six days before Passover, so... That would have been the Saturday before the great festival. So we're talking about an event that happened on a Saturday. The anointing here, that that happened on the Saturday, while the donkey ride into Jerusalem took place the very next day, which would have been Sunday, hence why we call it Palm Sunday. So during supper, Martha Martha was serving, and we're told that Lazarus, the man who was dead, was there, and he was reclining at table with Jesus, Small theological point here. We are brought to life, and then we dine with Jesus. That's how the process works. That's how communion works. We're, we're dead in our sins. Jesus raises us to life in him, and then we dine with Jesus. We recline with him. And that is, of course, a picture of communion. So we're told in verse 3 that Mary, which is probably Mary Magdalene, though we can't be super hard-fisted about it, um, he took, she rather, took a pound of very costly perfume, which would have been about a year's wages, a year's wages uh, wrapped into this jar, and then she anoints the feet of Jesus, and to make matters even more chaotic, she uses her hair to clean his feet. Now, women back then were not allowed to lay, let their hair down in public. That's a no-no. No. All right. So this was very scandalous in the eyes of many. Yet here's Mary. Now you could let's let's do this. Don't be like the Pharisees looking in and thinking, boy, that's a scandalous situation. Let's look at Mary's perspective. Okay, Mary is shameless and full of adoration for her Lord. She's risking social custom. She's risking the possibility for people to criticize her, to excoriate her, throwing herself at the feet of Jesus in a manner that can really only be described as someone who is quite literally giving it their all. That's commendable. That's commendable. There are those whose adoration of Christ leads them to service, and then there are those like Judas. Judas, of course... Oh Judas, he is irritated at the woman's complete lack of financial discipline. He's frustrated. She, he's mad she didn't follow the Dame, Dave Ramsey plan. Okay. <laughs> instead of washing, um, um, uh, instead of washing his feet and wasting it, instead of the clear social faux pas that she had committed, she could have avoided the embarrassment. I mean, Judas is he's judicious about this. You could have saved it, and they could have done something way more righteous. I mean, this is Judas. They could, have done, they, they could have sold the perfume, and they could have taken that year's wages and given it to the poor. That's noble, right? Shouldn't we be on his side here? That's a good decision to make. I mean, there's poor people. We should help the poor. Why would you dump a whole thing of perfume on Jesus' stinky feet? and clean his feet. By the way, that's not an offensive statement, children. Back then, everybody had stinky feet all the time, walking with sandals and dirt. It was a normal thing. What is going on here? John tells us in verse 6, though, that Judas was not actually concerned with the poor because he would steal money, and clearly this would have been a great opportunity to get more money in his pocket. money motivated this man. So Jesus insists that there are two rival faiths here. There are two rival faiths. One which denies the kingdom of God by elevating the poor via theft, what we might call today socialism, and another faith which sees the priority of Christ and his kingdom over against everything, including the poor. The kingdom must be the priority because in verse 7, Jesus actually links, if you see in your text there, he links her actions, with his burial. In other words, here's the difference of the two faiths. Are we going to seek kingdom and justice first? True kingdom and true justice and righteousness, which we're told to do in Matthew, or will we go about it with our lust, with our greed? That's the two contrasts there. Now, when we jump down to verse 12, We read that there was a large crowd who had come to the feast the next day. A large crowd. Many, 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 many people had been hearing about this Jesus person. So they wanted to come and they wanted to catch a glimpse of him. When they gathered outside of Jerusalem, they took palm branches. They cut them down. They took palm branches and they met him, we're told in verse 13. And they shouted something intriguing. They said, Hosanna, which means Lord save, please save. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. And then we have this extra added part on John's part um, that he emphasizes. And even the King of Israel. The first part is a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 would have been a song that would have been sung on Passover repeatedly by Jewish people for a long, long, long time. And note here, that Jesus does not discourage the praise that he receives there. Note that. They are welcoming a king, and they know that. Their version of kingship and kingdom are a little twisted, but they're welcoming him, and Jesus doesn't, he doesn't discredit them. He doesn't discourage the praise. Sure, the praise is unwittingly given, but Jesus doesn't discourage it. His ever-public ministry has now grown to full-tilt publicity. (laughs) Publicity um, has has basically now reached full capacity. This is the height of heights. It's Passover. Here is Jesus, and they're praising him. blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And he doesn't say, keep that quiet. He doesn't say, well, no, 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 you don't understand. He goes with it. Now... What we have here is a collision of ideologies, a collision of symbols, and we need to see how they relate. First, Passover. Josephus tells us that millions would descend on Jerusalem for Passover, in and around Jerusalem. Millions. This, um, this party, if you will, this festival, was a reminder of the Exodus story. When God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And each Passover was a reminder that they were waiting for God to do it all over again. So, this is an important point. They wanted another Exodus, they're waiting for another Exodus. Rome is in the land, occupying the place. They wanted another act of God. But then there's this weird thing in the text that's emphasized by the writers of the Gospels, what did the people do? What did they have in their hands when he was coming? Well, they branches of palm trees. Why branches of palm trees? Well, branches of palm trees, if you were there 2,000 years ago, if you were standing there and everybody was getting palm trees, do you know what would have been on your mind? What would have been on your mind, any first century Jews mind, would have been Judas Maccabeus who had cleared the temple, cleansed the temple back in 164 BC and got rid of all the the paganism. They revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes. That's where the Hanukkah festival comes from. We've talked about this already in in our study of John. They're thinking that. Because remember, Judas was not a descendant. Judas Maccabeus was not a descendant of David. He could not be crowned king. But man, that was a great guy. His nickname was the Hammer. I would love that nickname. I don't think it'll catch on now at this point since I just said that. But this guy was popular. People knew, this was only a couple hundred I mean they would have talked about him like we talk about George Washington. That's the distance of time we're talking about. Even less than that actually. So the two symbols collide. You have Passover and Hanukkah. Passover is a spring celebration. Hanukkah is a midwinter celebration. But there's these themes that come together, and there are themes that are important, and here's why those symbols collide and why they're they're there. They want a Messiah, and they want a king. A lot of people debated if it's going to be the same person or not. Judas Maccabeus was like a Messiah figure. He was clearly anointed. He clearly won the battle Clearly, the temple had been cleansed, and then they had this new celebration, the Feast of Dedication, the Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. So they wanted a Messiah. They wanted a king. They're looking for this. They want deliverance. That's why they're there at Passover. They want deliverance, and they they just need a leader. They need someone like Moses to come and do this all over again. So clearly their assumptions about Jesus are very high. They're pretty high. Would he come and would he fulfill our expectations? That's the question about Jesus. They want to know what he's going to do next. That's the pulse of Jerusalem during this time. The most holy festival on the Jewish calendar. What is this Jesus of Nazareth going to do? He raised a man from the dead. What's next? What's he going to do next? Now... However, in verse 14, Jesus rides on an unconventional, unorthodox young donkey. Um, Matthew tells us that Jesus sent the disciples ahead to get the donkey, and the disciples tell the owner of the donkey, the the Lord needs this. The Lord has need, need of this. And Jordan and I have been trying to say that on a lot of occasions. The Lord needs this, but we haven't gotten that yet. So they get the donkey, and Jesus is riding in the donkey, and clearly this is a fulfillment of Scripture that Cody just read. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, nine. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is where it gets very interesting. The crowds want a king, but they want a king on their terms. They want a king like Solomon, who had thousands of horses. They want a victorious king. You might say they want a victorious king who isn't showing up on a donkey, but showing up on a white horse. See, Jesus will ride on a white horse, by the way. And by will ride, I don't mean that to be future. Revelation 19 is a past thing. Jesus rides on a white horse in accordance with Revelation 19, which happens after his death and resurrection, after the battle is won. Okay, you don't ride a white horse into battle. You ride a white horse back to your homeland after you have won the battle. So he will ride that white horse, but not yet. Now, For Jesus, this is the time for this humble king to ride a humble donkey. Okay? Jesus is a humble king. He's not the king they want. He's the king they need. And he's riding a humble donkey. They they go together. Um, You might say cross before crown. Donkey before horse. See, Jesus caused a stir in Jerusalem with this grand entrance, and verse 17 says that many, many people testified about him. He was the talk of the town. He was the talk of the festival. People were going to him and meeting him, and because of all this stuff, but mostly because of the sign of of Lazarus. That was a miraculous thing. He had exercised authority over death in a way that no one had ever done. So who is this man? And yet we read in verse 19 this cryptic statement. Look at verse 19. The Pharisees say to one another, this is, I love this, if they only knew. They said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. They like, they come to grips with it. Like they're looking around, guys, we've done no good here. And then they say something quite ominous. The world has gone after him. Like Caiaphas, who said that it's better for Jesus to die than the whole nation. So we have yet again another unsuspecting prophecy from the lips of the skeptics. We'll come back to this. What do we do with a passage like this? To start, I think it's important to catch what's bubbling underneath this storyline. The gospel story is the story of how God became king. You want the gospel? You have a story about God becoming king but it's not the sort of story that we would write up. It's not. We would not write up stories like this. These events are all tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now take note, because I have a theory here, and I think I'm right, but maybe I'm wrong, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> As I said two weeks ago, Lazarus needed to be raised so that Jesus could go in the tomb, okay? Okay. Lazarus was told to come out, and the reason he was told to come out is because it was Jesus' time to go in. It was his turn. That's substitution right there. Lazarus was told to come out so Jesus could go in. Jesus must die. His hour was not yet, but now it's coming. His hour is coming, he says. The story of Mary's washing of Jesus' feet, we're already told the obvious. That's his burial. So in Lazarus, we have a picture of his death. Now with the, the feet-washing incident with Mary, we have a picture of his burial. She was anointing him for a burial that everyone around Jesus didn't quite understand. And now, check out the connection. That's We have death, burial, and now we have resurrection. Now we have Jesus riding into town on a donkey on Passover when everyone was thinking about the lamb who will be slain, but Jesus is that unsuspecting lamb who will rise as king victorious over the powers that be. Listen, the humble donkey that leads Jesus to the cross will then turn into a white horse of resurrection victory. The humble donkey that leads Jesus to the cross will turn into a white horse of resurrection victory. These things are a foreshadowing of about what's going to take place. And there's all these unwitting participants who don't know exactly what in the world is going on and what's taking place. But there's more that connects the passage. Um, You don't have to turn here, but you might want to write it down for later if you want. But In Mark 14, 9, Mark 14, 9, we learn there that Mary's actions here would accompany... Gospel preaching all over the world. Do you remember that, that passage? John does not emphasize that, but it's there. <clears throat> I think it's there in his own way. Jesus says what she has done would be told everywhere. What she, her actions would be told all over the earth. Where the gospel goes, her story of washing his feet would go. Here we are 2,000 years later. What are we talking about? And then we're told in 2 Corinthians 2.15, this, 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, Mary's love for her Savior in this small act matched the love her Savior has towards those who he's come to save. What she did was simply mirror what Jesus is doing she mirrored in that moment what Jesus is doing. The travail of his soul as he faces the inevitable outcome of his ministry leading him to death. That is the very fragrance that filled the home. They're smelling this perfume. They're engaged. Their senses are engaged. It's, it, the text says it filled the whole room. But there's something going on there. What was filling the room? What did Jesus say that represented his burial. And I can't, you can't help but think of um, Mary and Martha panicked that Jesus waited two days to come. Why? Because it would have been stinky. The body would have decomposed. There's a play here. And now we have this beautiful fragrance. But what does this beautiful fragrance actually represent? Lazarus' death was stinky. Why? Because that's sin. Jesus' death is different. It smells great it smells good. That's the fragrance of the gospel that filled the room, and it's a picture of the fragrance of the gospel that's to fill the earth. Mary is a representation of the church, which in due time will be poured out into the world. See, the sacrifice of Christ is a stench of death to those who are dying. That's why they're bloodthirsty abortionists. It's a Fragrance of death. But for us who are being saved, it's a sweet aroma that goes into the world, and it gets into all the crevices. The beauty of Christ's death. See, the gospel, like a toddler, gets into everything. (laughs) Some of you know that. The gospel is like a toddler who gets into everything, and that's a good thing. See, and this connects to the very next passage and the very next day. The way, the way of gospel fragrance going into the world is not defined on the world's terms, but on Christ's terms. Mary's anointing of Jesus for his burial is the path to true kingship. That's the path he's on. She's not anointing him to be king in their sense. She's anointing him to be king in his sense. He has to die. He has to be buried. But that's the path to true kingship, and so is the riding of a donkey. See, the donkey is most assuredly not a military animal. You don't go into war on a donkey. You will be laughed at. All right? Just so we're clear, if that ever comes up and we need to go into war on an animal, don't ride a donkey. (laughs) Military leaders like Alexander the Great, legends of that time, they rode Horses, not donkeys. Donkeys are small, humble animals. They are not war horses. And yet Jesus rides the donkey because the path to kingship isn't by the sword. It's not. Jesus is not conquering by the sword. See, Jesus will not. This is important. Jesus will not clamor for the throne like our father Adam had tried to do in the garden. He is not clamoring for the throne like Adam, who is willing to forsake all of things, all of God, all of life in God, for perceived knowledge that the devil promised. No, Jesus, he will confront the powers, he will exhaust death in himself, and then receive the kingdom that his father has set before him. But notice what we read in Zechariah 9. There's, a, there's more to this Zechariah passage, especially verse 10. Israel's king comes on a donkey. He cuts off the chariots and war horses of Israel. Don't miss this from Zechariah. And he does all of that because he will, quote, command peace to the nations. This is Zechariah's vision. The king comes to Israel on a donkey to destroy the war horses. And bring peace to the nations. And then it says he will have dominion from sea to sea. And what John wants us to do and wants us to see is that that's how the story must unfold. The disciples didn't understand this at the time. John says so as much in verse 16. Um, They didn't understand. But after the resurrection, it all came together for them. The way of peace is humility, not aggression. The way of peace is humility. If only the United States government could understand this. The way of peace is humility, not aggression. Children, the way of peace with your siblings is humility, not aggression. The way of the kingdom is service, not domination. How else is Christ to become king? If we're writing that story, what are we thinking? He's going to come and slaughter all the enemies. Well guess what? He does. God defeats his enemies two ways. He either breaks them and converts them or he destroys them in hell forever as a just payment. But he will and he does. But now is the time for his kingdom. He sets the greatest example for us in what it means to lead and that is through sacrificial service. That's the gospel fragrance we're after. Do you see the connection? It's enthralling if if you're paying close attention to it. In verse 16, the disciples, as I mentioned, they didn't understand these things at first. It's interesting that John plugs that in there as sort of an act of humility. Yeah, we didn't know what was going on. That's what he's essentially saying. But what's curious, though, what's curious is at the very end of the passage, guess who did understand what was going on? The religious leaders. They understood what was going on. John tells us, the disciples, no idea, no clue. The leaders, what do they say? They're saying exactly what's happening. (laughs) They know the whole purpose of the thing, yet in their sin, their hatred for Jesus grew hotter and hotter and deeper and deeper. And they admit in verse 19 that the whole world is going after Jesus now. And guess what? That's what's happening right now. The whole world is going after Jesus And they understand what's at stake. The disciples, they have a reality check. Jesus is gaining a following, and it made them uncomfortable. And Jesus, he's constantly upsetting the apple cart, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And they knew the ramifications involved in this whole thing. Jesus is going to turn the whole world upside down. Remember the book of Acts? But the disciples, they didn't quite understand it all. It's the same problem we have today in our church. Many Christians do not understand these things, yet the world around us does get it, right? The world around us knows it's a baby, still wants him dead. But then you have Christians who have the opposite dilemma. We admit that it's a baby, but we don't want to act based on that claim. It's the same issue. The disciples had faith. No doubt, the leaders didn't have saving faith, no doubt. The disciples' faith was a bit wobbly, of course. But but what the Pharisees and Sadducees understood was that Jesus had come to confront them and their claim to authority and establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And what's interesting is that in their oblivious admission of this, they realize they're on the losing end. They know that they're going to lose. They've lost it. They know it. The enemies of Christ here, they they admit that they're losing. They're not winning the battle. They're losing this thing. See, catch this, cuz this is going to be rather abrasive and it's intended to be such. Unbelievers today understand the total claims of Christ and they refuse to bow. Christians today do not understand the total claims of Christ and they refuse to obey. That's what we have at play here. Unbelievers understand what it means that Jesus is Lord. They get it. and They don't want any part of it. But what do we have today in our churches? Christians who don't understand the totality of Christ's claim on the totality of their life. And yet... They refuse to obey. That's the main issue here. They know that the only way to deal with Jesus is to eliminate Jesus. The only way to get you abortion-minded agitators to shut up is to shut you up. But the disciples, though, they, you know, in their defense, they were impressed with how this thing was panning out. They... They argued earlier, if you recall, who was gonna sit on the right or left. They were clamoring for that. Who's gonna sit on the right or left? They 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 wanted Christ's kingdom, but they wanted it on their terms. You know, they, they believed it was going to be accomplished in the way that all kingdoms are accomplished of the earth. That's how this that's how we do this thing. We we're like Rome, where we just go to countries and nations and say, Bow before us or die. And then we say we're winning. So they thought that this probably was quite literally the crowning achievement of Jesus' ministry, a moment to absolutely celebrate. Look at this. This is the big day. It's Passover. We have Hanukkah, palm branches. There's magic in the air. Listen, guys, we have arrived. This is it. But this was not the pinnacle. It was not the top of the glory mountain, though it was a glorious moment, shadowed but glorious. Death will not be defeated if that is the crowning achievement. Jesus didn't show up to Jerusalem on a donkey to win a popularity contest. See, our sins will not be defeated if this is the be-all, end-all of Christ's ministry, right? Crowned by the people, they've tried to do that already. Crowned on their terms, heaven quite literally forbid. The gospel fragrance will soak into the world Only when Christ goes to the cross, that's it. That's the only way it'll happen. The cross is where gospel fragrance receives its potency. Mary humbled herself to the point of sharing in his burial. That's the way of the cross. Jesus humbled himself to the point of riding a modest, humble donkey. That's the way of the cross. The scent of gospel fragrance is humility and service. That's the way of the kingdom of God, which means that you and I, we need desperately to rethink how we treat this thing we call the Christian life. We need to consider this question. This is the only question I'm asking you to consider tonight. Why, which which type of messiah are you looking for? They're there showed up looking for a messiah. Which type? What are you looking for? Right? Because the disciples they didn't know what was coming next. They didn't know, but you do. Yeah, you the word of God in your lap. You confess Christ. You know what type of messiah are you looking for? When it comes to parenting, when it comes to money. When it comes to business, when it comes to church, the communion of the saints, when it comes to your job, when it comes to your marriage relationship, what type of Messiah do you think that you want for tomorrow when you or a loved one finds out that they have terminal cancer? What type of Messiah do you want? Do you want a bloody cross and an empty tomb where true life and light resides? Or do you want the world's version of salvation focused on man and his perceived solutions? Do you want a Savior that bends to your wishes? Do you want a Savior that you can control? Because Jesus isn't safe. He's not going to let you have your idols too. Remember when Jacob and Rachel hid the idols? He't you're not going to get those. See, if we want true gospel fragrance, not just in our lives, but in, in, in the lives of those around us, then we have to follow Jesus. And this means submitting to him in every single area of life, chasing him down every single day, obeying him every single day. The moment when you say, I don't have time to pray today, I don't have the time to pursue justice today, I don't have the time to be patient today. Those are the moments when you need to say, I need gospel fragrance, and I need it now. And much of that we'll cover next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with meekness and humility, basking in the glory of Christ's humble anointing and triumphal entry. We see that all of this was triumphal because it was done in terms of your will, not the will of men. And we are grateful for this. We are thankful that you have set the terms and conditions of how this whole thing works. Because if we had it our way, we would only wish for a dead Messiah, not one raised to be king. So we bow before you, King Jesus, and we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would you anoint us as, as, as a true and abiding gospel fragrance, permeating the world around us for your glory, for the glory of the triune God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.